whatever space between uh, does will always be driven by innovation Yeah. because uh, there's no point in us going into any drinks category or drink space and not innovating. In this episode of the podcast, I chat to the founders of a South African drinks company who have created a world-first gin innovation in under four months and during a nationwide lockdown. Their new gin is now in stores and they're daring you to try it. I'm sitting with Zeka, Matt and Rob who run a company called Space Between Drinks. Uh, which is a drinks innovation machine or drinks innovation company. Uh, welcome, guys. It's an absolute privilege to have you on the podcast. Thank Hello, you John. for having us, sir. So what I wanted to really chat to you about is that you have founded a, a drinks company at a time when founding any alcohol company in South Africa has been hugely challenging. And in the last couple of months, you've, uh, you've brought a new product from idea stage to now being in macro stores, which is Mood Gin. If you haven't tried Mood Gin, it's in macro stores. Uh, I think it's a... <laughs> and Yuppie Chef, as Sinzeka is reminding me. I want to start off with uh, Mood Gin. Where did this idea come from, Nzeka? Maybe you want to kick us off there. Oh, geez. Okay. <laughs> Throw me in the deep end. Um, yeah, uh, Mood Gin is what I call our lockdown baby. Um, it was an idea that was generated uh, during lockdown. Um, and it was an idea that we had previously played around with, but never got right. Um, and... It's something that we wanted to revisit during this period. Um, and yeah, we launched in the brand concept in July. So we just started fleshing that out uh, to eventually get to where we are now, essentially. And so it, we're now that, in October. At that point in time, and bear in mind that we had an idea, a concept of making this gin that pairs with soda. We had no idea how to do it, if it would work, not even a clue. But we thought, let's start putting a brand together to try and Talk about this concept. So, Rob, just to elaborate a little bit more on that. Mood gin, the mm. concept that we're talking about, is a gin that pairs with soda. That's correct, yes. But also pairs with tonic and also goes well on the rocks, which is, that's the more challenging thing. We thought it was, we thought the big challenge was to make it pair with soda. And I guarantee you, it's very difficult to get a gin to pair beautifully with soda. I'm not saying mix with soda. You can put, you can put vodka with soda, you can put gin with soda, you can put whiskey with soda. All these things are fine. But is it going to taste like a complete cocktail? Is it going to give you that gin and tonic experience? And the answer is no, unless it's mood gin. Right. So as far as we know, there, there aren't any gins in the world that actually are able to be mixed with soda successfully. Well, yeah, there's no gins that we're aware of anywhere in the world that perfectly pair with soda. Many might claim they do, but this was engineered and designed to pair with soda, while at the same time, it still mixes perfectly with tonic and still goes well on the rocks. And the reason I keep coming back to that is that proved immensely difficult finding that balance right because every time you got the soda combination perfectly right you then then it threw out the tonic mix and then you had to go and try and mix the tonic and then you're like okay wait great it goes with soda it goes with tonic try it in the rocks it doesn't work on the rocks back to the drawing board mm. so it was a quite um, an interesting it was it was a lot of tasting um yeah. <laughs> and, and for me who doesn't uh drink 
started drinking uh, oh my goodness. in July. So literally, as Rob says, the the three it was three categories exactly as he says, and every single time we'd be like, okay, cool, and then we have to start from scratch again, and then scratch again. So. I consumed a lot of tonic during, I mean, a lot of gin and tonic, which, yeah, is something that I generally don't do, but um, here we are. Yeah, as a non-drinker, Nzeka had a lot of fun that day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, for me, the turning point is that Nzeka's always deadpan with my dad jokes, but a few of those gin and sodas in, and she was loving all of my jokes for the first time ever. <laughs> Not true. <laughs> I, think, I think the logical question that follows from that is, um, why gin and soda? And, and maybe that's worth kind of like looking a bit at that. So um, we were looking at trends, obviously, like that, that are currently out in the market. We were also looking like who is consuming most uh, um, uh, uh, beverages in that, in that sort of trend. And um, uh, it came down to the point, people are certainly looking for healthy alternatives to the things that they're used to currently. Um, I think when you're drinking soda, like the, 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 the taste of sugar and actually like after having like two G and T's, like just being quite filled with sugar and quite overwhelmed with it. Uh, I think everyone can, can attest to that. Uh, mm. um, and if you go further, obviously like there's also not a great experience thereafter. Um, so for us to create something that, um, firstly has a large fan base, which is gin tonics has a large fan base, uh, which also plays into, um, the trend of, Female consumption, which is the largest growing consumer group. Um, I spend a lot of time at, uh, at Diageo many, many years. And like, um, for the last, certainly for the last four years or so, like by far the largest growing uh, consumption trend in alcohol is female consumption. Um, uh, um, and, uh, playing to this trend, um, but playing also like to the health concerns, uh, um, was, was the, the turning point for us to say, like, why don't we try and give an alternative to those tonic drinkers and, um, uh, gin and tonic drinkers and like I think like the, the, the feedback that could be given is like well of course I could drink a sugar free tonic but um, I think we all know if we have tried it like it just doesn't taste right it just doesn't taste the same as a gin and tonic it just doesn't give you those flavor notes and in fact like in some cases it actually tastes um, quite quite inferior to a tonic yeah? and it's not a nice experience um, yeah that was the starting point for gin and soda so Matt we know that there is quite a big trend in the United States of something that they call hard seltzer does this Correct. play into that as well yeah very much so so like the insight from hard seltzer like if you if you uh, listen to the, the industry sources on this uh, um, there's lots of drink fads that come, come and go every year there's a new kind of soda pop there's anything interesting like they call it like alcohol pops um, and they come and go however hard seltzer um, is one widely regarded and by most industry analysts as a trend to stay. And it's exactly because of this um, uh, a dynamic that I've uh, been speaking about. So it's um, uh, female consumers looking for nice tasting drinks um, that, that are non-sugary, um, uh, uh, low calorie count, but still give you a great, uh, a great feeling and like a, a good time if you want to. Mm. And uh, hot seltzer essentially like is, is that idea. And gin and soda is sort of like the next step of trying to make this idea um, uh, stick with a consumer group that already knows how to drink a certain drink. Uh, and especially from a perspective that um, South Africa is a tricky market when it comes to hard seltzer because it just hasn't landed on these shores just yet. There's a couple of them that crept out lately. Um, but as a name, seltzer is not, is not really um, uh, broadly um, uh, known by South Africans. So we try to... 
kind of figure out, well, how do we bring a concept like this or an idea like this to life with something that South Africans know? Mm. Um, with obviously being in mind, we want to obviously take this uh, internationally as well. Mm. But it's a good starting point for South Africa to think about it in that, in that light. Yeah. Yeah. So just from a brand perspective, um, our aim looking at what was out there on the shelves, um, we often got the feedback that consumers um, were confused as to what gin is what, what looks, because they all look the same, right? So uh, at the outset, we wanted our brand to look different. We wanted to think different and we wanted to act different. Mm. Um, and that was always key from, from the very beginning of thinking about this concept. So mood came about there where it was just being the purple cow essentially on that gin shelf. So what that means is looking completely different to any other gin on the shelf. And that's what you'll see with um, Mood's brand aesthetic. Mm. Um, you, you see it's very colorful and it's got lifestyle images. Um, and that also just speaks to the lifestyle aspect. Mood fits into your life effortlessly. Mm. Um, instead of trying to prescribe to uh, customers on how you should step into our brand and how you should act in um, mood presence or how you should have our um, our product. We wanted to um, fit into your life and we understand there's no one type of consumer. I mean, even if you have a target market, within that target market, you have hundreds and thousands of different people, personality types, etc. So if you were to think of mood gin, essentially, I would say it's a lifestyle brand that just happens to sell gin. Mm. Um, we essentially want to fit into your life, your mood, whatever that is, and we're coming along for that journey. Mm. Um, and that's essentially uh, the thought pattern behind that. And you make a good point because gin tends to be quite stiff. Um, Perfect the, serves and how you should have it. And often also the, the, the drinks, the cocktail mixtures are so extravagant, which mm. is awesome when you're out, but you can't replicate it when you're home. Yeah. So we also wanted from a recipe standpoint, give you those easy to make recipes that you can just, oh, I've got this and this, throw it together and I have a, a great drink. Yeah. Well, I mean, a good way to just jump on that, on some one of the articles you put out. I was reading one of the articles on your uh, blog post last night about mm. aviation and about Ryan Reynolds, mm. which everybody's seen what, what's happened there. And something that, I mean, we're a very different concept, but something that I really liked about what they did is one of the posts, I mean, they, they poked a lot of fun at things, but when, when Ryan Reynolds does that, that video about the, how the gin is made, mm. and he pokes fun about how they use um, the citrus fruits are sprayed with the mist of the owner's tears, me, Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> like, just that, it, it, it's it like, they've got their own product and everything like that and the whole brand concept, but what he's actually conveying is that like, as much as we like gin, as like, much as we like craft gin and all the brands, they're very prescriptive and they're very much, there's a tendency, let's call it, I don't want to make a blanket statement across them all, but there's a tendency of, of lots of craft and premium gin brands to want to talk a lot about themselves and make the brand look very cool and make you feel like for you to hang out with us, you have to be cool. Yeah. And we just wanted to completely reverse that and wanted to rather inspire a great lifestyle, fun activity, having a good time, but enjoy it the way you want to. Don't let us tell you what to do. Yeah. Which is so refreshingly different because your product looks radically different. Uh, I think the advertising and marketing work that you've done is so uh, unique and so exciting. It, it really does stand out. And I guess, um, I guess that kind of ticks the box of, of growth hacking in a way because uh, I, I suppose in the craft space, you can spend a lot of time talking about how great the product is and how long it took you to make this thing. 
but that takes a long time to build up a following of fans. Um, I think immediately when I see Mood Jin, it just jumps off the shelf at me when I see it. No, for sure. It's um, an interesting point to make there also from a um, from a COVID perspective. You know, like this time, everyone, Nzeka uh, uh, can share a little anecdote later from um, from our designer team, like what, what they were saying about us launching a gin brand in lockdown now, mm-hmm. which seems crazy. But um, uh, the way we designed the brand, there's an interesting interesting spin to this because COVID has made everyone more careful how they shop, uh, where they shop, obviously, and um, 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 to, to do as much social distancing as possible. So what it also means is like that your traditional ways of selling a gin are barred. You cannot do tastings in stores currently. You cannot go out and like go to massive parties and like spread a couple of bottles around. Those things yeah. all don't exist. Yeah? So your only way of actually standing out is being something entirely different. So when a shopper goes into a shop or like uh, shops online, it needs to stand out. And this is also an element like that we really wanted to play up to box way above our weight against all the big millions of bucks of advertising that the big companies have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, our product is proudly premium. Uh, it is not a craft gin reserved for a very small amount of people in South Africa. It is very much uh, um, a premium product that you can spoil yourself with, but it's accessible from a price point perspective to a broad range of South Africans. Mm. And um, for them to shop it and for, for, for that bottle to stand out on shelf and give us uh, a good chance of recognition or a good chance of like someone walking past and saying like, hey, what is this? Let me, let me pick this up. Mm. Um, that was almost a byproduct of lockdown that now I think plays in our favor and we're trying to really make it um, uh, an ad- advantage of our brand. So I, I just want to ask this. I mean, as a strategy, this is an audaciously risky, <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. You've got a product <laughs> yeah, which, has never, which has never been made before. Uh, so now you're not trying to be everything to everybody. You are specifically saying, right, we really stand for one thing. Um, which although you said, yeah, we, we're for everybody, it's a super, super niche product. Then you've gone the exact opposite to what everybody else does when a, a small company launches a gin. Generally, it's like beautiful graphics and they talk about the heritage and all that kind of stuff. You've thrown all of that out and you've gone, right, we are going to go audaciously different. Uh, it looks like Duran Duran just put out a gin. Um, it's, it's quite a crazy strategy. I mean, uh, so we've seen all these things at work, and we're going to do the exact opposite. Yeah, yeah. yeah so actually, John, I remember um, us going through this, right? And I was like super pumped, um, and you're like, "Yeah, no, it's it's great," but and I'm like, "I don't understand why. Why are you having a rebuttal here? This is amazing!" Like this is the future really and you're like yeah i don't know like i I could see a big brand pulling this off but it's too big for you guys i was like well if that's the problem we gave like we are for the challenge (laughs) absolutely yeah i will will absolutely own that because i think at the time i said i don't see it i think it is absolutely crazy this is all on you (laughs) i literally took it and handed it over to you and said it works you're the genius here because i don't see it it's it's crazy. And I think, I think one, one thing to add here as well is like as much as this looks like a niche product, uh, um, that niche sort of character of like being able to pair, pair with, uh, with soda as, as, a, as, a, as a main USP is great. However, as Rob said, like we went through crazy lengths 
to make this product really, really, really good with tonic as well. So it actually almost has a, um, while it has a Ferrari mode, it has a VW Golf mode as well. Because mm. like if you buy this just because you like the pictures, just because you picked it up and you're not even reading the label yeah. and you drink it as normally with your, gene, uh, with your tonic, uh, it still works perfectly. But if you decide you want to supercharge it into health mode and um, uh, drink it with soda, you can do that. Uh. Yeah. So while it is absolutely like there's a niche USP here, it still works perfectly in the usual sense that people are used to drinking their gin. Yeah. And we're living in the age of the co uh, conscious consumer, right? Um, and it's conscious in every aspect, like whether it's sustainability, but most importantly, right now from a health perspective. So this is something that speaks to that consumer that wants to ensure that what they're consuming actually is beneficial to them, their bodies, or taking care of themselves. Um, and those people who also look at, oh my gosh, I'm eating X amount, that's too much, I have to go to gym afterwards. So it almost takes away that pressure. Go to gym when you want to go to gym, not because now you have to work off a burger and gin and tonic that you had mm. instead of having sugar-free because you don't like sugar-free because of the artificial taste that it has. Um, it's, just offer, it's just offering that consumer something um, more and just because it he it's healthy doesn't mean that it needs to taste badly and I think that's what we're challenging here mm. is that the health aspect of it can also taste just as good if not better yeah now it might sound like the people that I'm chatting to work for a massive uh, international company and they're running a small skunk works operation for them but it you know you're entrepreneurs uh, you're independent, you are doing this by yourself. It's not like you've got wads of capital behind you. Started with nothing. Yeah. You, you started not, from the bottom. Now you're not here. floating it with, with a billion dollars. Um, no, we wish we could. So, yeah. <laughs> Just imagine. <laughs> so I want to kind of chat about that aspect of, of business because I think a lot of entrepreneurs in South Africa might have a great idea, but then how do you commercialize that idea? How do you take a, a bold vision and put it into a market and make it financially successful. So let's just chat a little bit about the, the challenges of, um, of commercializing, of actually making this a viable business. I've got two thoughts that can kick that off. I mean, the, my, my two colleagues on the right, colleagues, I thought I'd make it sound for, like formal, you know. Um, they can probably actually give you more insight into that, but there's almost like a, a genesis before that that I thought maybe worth mentioning. Uh, the one part is... Um, it's been a tough year and, uh, and we've all had financial strain and, um, had run big losses during lockdown and, you know, in previous adventures hadn't all worked out so well. And what's quite, uh, what's the word refreshing is, um, when you find yourself at the bottom with nothing, you realize, well, you got nothing to lose. And it's a weirdly freeing feeling because if you look at, I look at a lot of friends who have got comfortable jobs who badly want to go and do something and start something. And so the, the point I'm making is it's that mindset is quite useful. And for us, we almost had no choice because all of a sudden our options were taken away from us. So we didn't have the option of do I stay in this or do I stay in that. In our individual situations, we realized that there were no options available. Backs is against the wall. So it gives you this freeing feeling to, well, now I don't have to worry about losing this or losing that. There's nothing to lose. Let's just go for it. So that was, I think, is the first part. And so... I'm not advocating that people put, them in a, put themselves in a position where they've got nothing to lose. But it's also just to remind yourself sometimes that the things that you're worried about losing, it's, it's it, like imagine worst case scenario, it's probably not that bad and you can probably go ahead with things. Mm -hmm. And then commercialization is, as I say, the Matt and Zek will give you better views on that. But uh, 
a concept that was ringing true for me from everything everyone's been saying is um, the circumstance of being in the middle of lockdown. In fact, we pretty much kicked this whole project off at the height of the second liquor ban. And at that point in time, everyone's confidence was in a very bad space. So when remember in June in South Africa this year, when the liquor ban lifted, there was this kind of renewed energy and growth in the, in the consumer space and online was picking up. Everyone thought things were great. When that second liquor ban came along, things started looking very dire and retailers started losing confidence. So it was a, a very bad time to start. And that put us in a position where our drivers in terms of the product development are the consumer focus and innovating around the consumer need, right? Which are very common phrases that people throw around the whole time. But I think the big difference for us is because it was such a desperate time and that anything we put out there would pretty much be destined to fail if it wasn't very highly innovative and it wasn't really focused on, a, on an actual consumer need. Because anything else we put there that was slightly me too following other patterns just would have no chance. So we almost had no chance, but no, we had no option but to take a big bet but for that bet to be very focused on the consumer and taking a big, bold, innovative step. Mm. And that's, as opposed to saying it because it sounds cool, it's like that was the position we were in. You know, yeah. and that's where the cards were dealt and that's how we handled them. Mm. Which is maybe a, an amazing consequence of the pandemic and the lockdown, yeah. is I'm seeing more and more reports out of the United States and uh, South Africa where the largest number of businesses have recently been registered yeah. in both. Uh, CIPC yeah. registers um, businesses online, and they had a huge spike uh, during this time. Partly, I think, because maybe people were retrenched, maybe they were, um, you know, demoted, and they've just, you know, they're, they're gutful now. They've, they've had it. They're going to go and start their own thing. So in some ways, it might be the greatest thing to have ever happened uh, because now you've got all of these new entrepreneurs starting businesses, creating value where there was none before. Um, and I guess as a facilitator, I often say to businesses, well, the problem is, is that you're comfortably numb. Um, you've got all of this funding. You actually don't have any urgency to make things work. Uh, and what you're saying is that in actual fact, if your back's up against the wall, you're going to come out fighting, throwing punches you've never punched before. Uh, but you're kind of in a desperate situation where you just have to make it work. Um, yeah, there's no other option. And I think um, to add to that is um, partners, you know, having the right partners. Um, and that's given in any circumstance. But um, more so with this venture, which allowed us to actually commercialize this, right, um, was being able to know that these are the right people that we can reach out to um, and that, that they can help us um, bring this idea to life. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I think that has been the biggest blessing, knowing um, who those partners are and who we can um, go, go to and rely on to help us through this so that we can actually get something from idea to actual business case product in store. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to, to, to paraphrase this a little bit, you know, um, and to take a little bit of the romanticism out of it. There's a thousand stories out there about beautiful brands that um, people had a product idea, had no um, partners, no previous experience, and they, they made a fantastic success out of it. Uh, um, there's a thousand stories because we don't hear about the millions of stories of people who have tried this and have failed with it. Uh, um, 
So as I said, like to take a little bit of the romanticism out of this, um, it's a game of risk minimization. This is not to say like this is not a risky venture. Of course, this is highly risky, mm. uh, as every new venture is. But I think especially in this field, it is extremely risky. But risk minimization is not only just throwing money at it. You know, like it's it's long standing experience. And um, the good thing is that we have a team of like, funny enough, like three fairly varied aspects of the same industry but long-standing experience in those uh, and good connections to partners, both from a production and both from a trade perspective. So we could put those together and pool them into a framework of risk minimization where we could know who we need to speak to. We could figure out the sources where we get raw materials from. We could problem solve very quickly if one falls away. We know how how we could negotiate to get product in quicker, to get produced quicker, but also from a um, um, uh, uh, from where we needed product to be produced for us specifically, to maybe slip a bit ahead of the queues, um, to know the right retail partners that we could partner with and launch these products with because they knew us from from previous ventures or from our time as in corporate. So I think I think that it's quite an important one to to to, to state here. Um, Everyone who goes out and like builds a new business, it, it has a great, much greater chance of succeeding. Like if you can rely on that, and like we were fortunate that we, as a team, have this uh, and could could rely on this. So, mm. so I, I guess just to carry on that point, I think there's one thing that is important for us to talk about because there are other entrepreneurs that will listen to this podcast and draw inspiration from it. I think the one thing that that you as a team are really good at is that yes it was uh, this business is built on an original vision of of what you wanted to create but the one thing that you're really good at doing is recognizing the reality of where you're at at any one point and then going back in and problem solving as you're saying matt uh problem solving <laughs> again so it's not like there's one strategy and that strategy just rolls out. And I no. think often that's what happens is that entrepreneurs kind of have an idea of what the recipe is that they need to, to follow. And then they doggedly sit with that recipe uh, and just play, play it out, even though it's not necessarily delivering what's, what's important. I think what's really great about what you do is that you're constantly assessing whether you're making progress or not. And then you're not afraid to go back in and <laughs> almost reinvent the business from scratch. No, no, exactly. In the words of Ross, pivot is <laughs> the mantra here. <laughs> yeah, see, like in a startup like this, I mean, uh, I think in any startup, like problems will come to you all the time. Things will go wrong where you haven't even thought about them going wrong. I always say problems come to people who are good at solving them. Uh, sometimes I, yeah, you, you <laughs> sometimes <move>. I wish, <laughs> sometimes I wish like we wouldn't encounter that many problems. But as you say, John, like we, we're pretty good at uh, uh, solving problems but I think we're also pretty good at like um, what you said I just want to tickle out a bit more um, if you create your own brand if you create your own product you're kind of biased uh, and it's very very tough to see the criticism but like unless you actually um, step back you bring outside people in and you sense check yourselves constantly and pivot off that uh, flip I spent three months working on this 
it's not a bad, it's not a good idea. I need to change. Mm. You need to change. You need to listen to this outside criticism. Yeah. You need to be able to listen to the criticism. Mm. And I think we're fairly good at that. Uh, like obviously like everyone wants to hold on to ideas, but we're fairly good at giving up ideas or changing them entirely into something more successful than they were before. And I think that is key in um, um, making a, a young startup success. Mm. And it's not easy. Sorry. No, just it's, say, not easy. it's not easy at all. Cause no. Even though Matt can say we're good at it um, in terms of the pivot, which we are, um, getting to that stage of actually pivoting once you've committed to that idea, right, is still difficult. Um, and more so for me. And that's where Rob and I, we hardly ever butt heads. Like but that's where Rob and I, we butt heads. My goodness. When I'm like so committed already and we all committed. And then next thing you know, it's like, Hmm, maybe we should just, you know, pivot. And I'm like, oh my goodness, are you joking? Um, but I think it's always staying true in terms of, for us, putting the consumer first. Um, and the resistance to pivoting often, more so from um, an entrepreneurial perspective, or once you committed to an idea, is because it's self, you know, it's self-indulgence and it's more protecting that idea that you have. But the moment you remove yourself from the situation, it's not about you. At the end of the day, it's about our consumers. Mm. So if the pivot is to suit them in the best way possible, then it's something that we need to do. Yeah. I think I've just realized why I hate the word pivot so much, because it sounds like it's just you, you do it once. Uh, and I think it sounds quite corporate as well. Yeah, it should be uh, that you're pivoting or there are pivots. Like every day there's a different pivot that you need to take. Every day a pivot. A different route. You know, it just sounds like people do it once and it's like, cool, we did it, let's walk away, we just solved the problem. But it's also like it's a fine balance, right? So like on the one hand, um, well, you've got to be careful of pivoting too much, which is probably the main thing I need to worry about because I enjoy just chasing after the consumer and the opportunity, which is that could be dangerous, very dangerous as well. Sure. Um, but on the other hand, I think a lot of people read these stories about entrepreneurs and you listen to how I built this and you read these books and it looks like this hero's, this linear hero's journey of this one mm. heroic genius individual that created this vision and drove it all the way through to completion by themselves. And I think there's, there's two parts that are severely missing there. One is that that linear line, actually, that looking backwards is a linear line, going forward, it's just a crazy sprayed bouncer around trying to manage opportunity and challenge and trying to get to that end state. But the other key thing that often miss, is missing in those stories is people romanticize this individual who drove things forward. But as we were speaking about earlier, like, I think the phrase that's, that stands true for me is that it takes a village, like it takes a village to raise a child. Mm. It takes a village to get a company like this off the ground. And there's three, four of us getting this thing done, but the amount of people who have been part of this journey so far and are going to be part of this journey going forward is massive. So for us to try and even sitting here, being proud of our achievements to date, which is still very small and there's still a long way to go, it's nothing without all the different people helping us and guiding us along on this path, this like group of partners, this village. Yeah, it uh, reminds me of something that Andrew Smith from Yapishev always says, is that he says that there's no silver bullet to Yapishev's success. <laughs> and, and he can't necessarily tell you what it was that made Yapishev successful. It was a series of little steps, mm. which ultimately resulted in it being a successful business. Um, which, you know, there, there's so many initial campaigns which you could say, wow, that was really clever by Yapishev and it built the brand over time. But I think he's right, and you know, you're also right. Is that it's 
it's interconnected, it's complex. There's no ways that you can pin it down into one thing or one person that created the success. There was a certain energy within uh, this group and it kind of gets there over time. I mean, I don't think we really care about overcoming the silver bullet. I mean, it feels like that bird has flown the coop. I mean, for us now, it's a lot more about how do we focus on what we do going forward? How do we focus on finding what the consumer wants and delivering something of value and uh, potentially having a good time doing it? Mm. And yeah, having a good time, but also you've also got to thread this whole thing of uh, a, a business. You know, you've got to find finance, you've got mm. to manage cash flow, you, you've got to have uh, deals with big, uh, big retailers and your suppliers, which kind of makes sense. It's tricky because it's creativity and technical ability at the same time. You've just got to be a jack of all trades. Yeah, and it's striking this balance as well because, you know, like you see great brand builders out there or great brand innovators. Uh, but like where it falls down often with brands is when it comes to the admin. Yeah? And as much as we stood here in the warehouse um, sleeving bottles, like as you said, colluses on hands and everything and bleeding, bleeding fingers, um, uh, the next day we have to go out and have, have a marketing meeting and speak about the brand uh, 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 intrinsics. The next day we have to figure out how does that work. Yeah? The next day we have to figure out like where, where do we get investment from and like um, uh, be in the deepest, deepest trenches of financial modeling for the next five years mm. for a brand that is three months old. That's that's quite interesting. Yeah? Yeah. So I think striking that balance right and um, um, maybe also to your listenership like who, who, who are in those shoes of, of trying to build a brand, you need to find the right partners and the right friends and um, the right advice uh, on all those things. Because if those things don't align, if you even let one of them slip, it's not going to work out for you. Because you, know? mm-hmm. you need to get the finance right on the one hand side. You get production right. You need to get the brand right. Any of those three not happening, mm-hmm. yeah. your brand is not happening. Just yep. play to the different strengths, really. And mm-hmm. that's where it having a team that has the different strengths that you can mm. leverage off at different points um, and then also coming together to actually, you know, pitch in in every way mm. possible. So as Matt said, we literally have been doing everything. I think production, the two weeks, three weeks of production, mm. oh my goodness, was, yeah, it was incredibly, incredibly challenging. Mm. Um, and yeah, yet we still, the next day, once that closes, we on to the next thing. Um, I mean, we're not resting anytime soon, but we are so exhausted. Mm. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the gin itself. Um, I tried to go down that route. Uh, Sorry. Uh, Rob <laughs> went somewhere else, but let's just talk about the gin. I what wanted to go into the admin and the finances. <laughs> <laughs> We've got three different gins. Tell me about them. Uh, cool. So the, the flavor notes, we, we, we try to get an array of flavor notes that appeal to our potential consumer and as I say, it sounds like you always, I always cringe a bit when people use those kind of words, but we're thinking about what are people going to enjoy and what are the flavors that people want out there? So the, one of the starting points for us is you, you need to get the premium gin consumer expects a London dry, right? So we needed to make sure this thing needs to stand on its own as a London dry. It's almost like if you make beer, you've got to make a good lager. And if you make craft beer, you've got to make a good IPA. And so we, the, the, the starting point was how do we make that this thing, when you pair it with tonic or you pair it with soda, it gives you a great London dry experience. What do you expect from a really good gin? But then we thought, okay, that's cool. Um, I think citrus is really nice. And uh, so I had a little bit of my own way with it. And so added, uh, let's call it a citrus backbone because the London dry flavors, there is a, 
there's a citrus element that often comes through. I mean, there, there's other elements that come through in different London dry gins, but that's one of the kind of elements. So we elevated that slightly and used a lot of natural citrus. And that was part of where we uncovered a bit of the secret, which I won't go into too much, but it turns out that some of the botanicals we use have what is needed in the end product of a cocktail. And so a perfect cocktail needs to have an element of sweetness, an element of bitterness, and an element of sourness. And what we realized with, with those combinations in developing that London Dry is that we could get a very flavorsome, maximum flavor of London Dry that would compete with a, a great citrus craft gin and compete with a great premium London Dry, but have those elements that would bring it together with the soda. The, the step off of that was, in, in my mind, if you're going strongly citrus and gin, you want to create something floral. Um, but ironically, as we were going down the floral route, um, the, our, our developers that we're working with um, put in front of us a combination with honeybush and just kind of threw it out their left field. And we thought, like, well, wait a second, okay, let's try this. And they just on their own just experimented a little bit with this honeybush combination. That was my favorite. Yeah. And we tried the honeybush. We were like, there wasn't even a plan to make honeybush. There was London Dry with a bit of a citrus and maybe this floral idea. And this honeybush thing just came out of there. And it was like, it almost, it was weird because it, it spoke to like liqueurs and the type of sweetness and it spoke to whiskies and the kind of dryness. It was just this weird combination that we, we realized that with the, the perceived sweetness of honeybush wouldn't necessarily appeal to um, your standard London dry gin and tonic drinker, but there's a whole new market of people who could actually much more jump into something like this. They just had these like interesting sweet flavors from the honeybush that are almost when you drink it, it's, it's like it, you're not sure if it's, it's like it's a great gin and tonic or it's like an iced tea, but it's also sugar free. So that was that direction. And then, so then we realized, okay, so there's this amber gin and the honeybush brings out this great natural amber color. Um, and we have this clear classic London dry with these kind of citrus elements to it, like a lo lot of local citrus plants. And then we sort of went back to the drawing board to make what became the third one, which was the floral one. And I mean, there are many varietals of pelagonium, such as rose geranium, but aside from the more well-known rose geranium, which is almost Turkish delight-like, there's the other flavors that come from the geranium leaves, such as mint and such as lemon and, and various kind of combinations like that. And what we realized between the three is you could have this tie-in between what people expect from a London dry gin and tonic, but at the same time, give them what they expect and take them a little bit further. So that's why you, how you've got the, the pink floral the classic and the honeybush amber. Mm. Pink is my favorite, actually. Mm. Men drink pink drinks. Mm. <laughs> I love it. They do. Oh, the amber is dangerous. What I say, the amber, I say it's dangerously delicious because you don't think you're consuming, and that's how I ended up drinking. And you don't a even whole, drink. Exactly. That's how I ended up drinking a whole glass of gin and soda for crying out loud. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is done. What happened? Um, so. My favorite is definitely the honeybush. Yeah, it's definitely something to try. I think when I first tried it, uh, each one of them with soda, uh, soda water. I mean, soda water and any spirit generally tastes terrible. It tastes super bitter. It's just mm. a, it's not a very pleasant experience. It, uh, yeah, I mean, it was like drinking soda stream for the first time. It was just amazing. <laughs> it's uh, such an amazing experience. And I, you know, it was, it was great. And it's very sessionable. Unlike a gin and tonic mm. where I think, as you were saying earlier, Matt, you can have one or two and then <laughs> that's it. Um, here you've got to stop yourself from 
I don't know, drinking most of the bottle. It's it, it's quite dangerous, but very <laughs> yeah. delicious. And it, it, it plays, again, like um, the way you consume it and the way it tastes, it plays much more into sort of the, this, this lifestyle of like how you want to drink it. Yeah, our first, uh, one of the first people who tasted it, like said to us straight away, he tasted it was also, I think it was the floral mm. with soda water. And he was a very seasoned gin drinker and he just put the glass and said, like, tastes like summer. Mm. And that, that's exactly <laughs> it. You know, like, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't have to have taste, have it in a bar in, in the Chesterfield. Yeah. Uh, because this is what the brand says. Like, I want it to taste like summer. Yeah. And like, it tastes like summer. It, it tastes, tastes like, great. it tastes fresh. It tastes have like one. fun. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So let's just end off. I'm, I'm interested to know this company, the space between drinks and innovation drinks company. What's mm. next? Yeah, so I think important to, 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 to state is we're not a gin company. Mm. You know? So yeah, we're deliberately not a gin company. Like it happened to be a gin because like I think there's still lots and lots of room to grow. With the special USP, I think like we can definitely like make, make another success. Our retail partners ask for a gin. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And, and retailers ask for a gin. So like that, that's just what it was. Mm. But deliberately like we're not a gin company. We want to innovate exactly as Rob said earlier. Like we don't want to scratch our own itch. We want to make sure like we find products that consumers are looking for. We want to make sure like that uh, retailers are looking for them because essentially like they are selling it to consumers and they have a much broader view of what is working in the market, what is not. Uh, so like, again, getting outside advice and like our getting, getting over ourselves in terms of what we think we need to ask the right people what they think. Uh, and, um, yeah, we've got lots of products in the pipeline. Maybe like we can give a little bit of a, a taster. Maybe not. No, no, no. tasters. Watch the space. <laughs> okay. Go out and try it. So one thing we will say in terms of that is uh, we won't necessarily give you what we're planning next, but whatever space between uh, does will always be driven by innovation Yeah. because uh, there's no point in us going into any drinks category or drink space and not innovating mm. uh, or not doing something that's different. So our company is largely driven by innovation. Um, and yeah, you just have to stay tuned to what we're doing. But I think I, I really enjoy your, your point of view because I think so many entrepreneurs, they have a personal experience and then they solve the issue that they themselves are feeling. Uh, and yes, there will be other people that think the same way. But I think if you're, if you're wanting to um, address the needs of a market, you've got to understand what people need. And as you say, if you understand what the requirements are of the important retailers in a market, you can supply into the demand that a retailer has, and they're going to do most of the marketing work for you. Um, so I think that's some good perspective. I, just as a side note, I was having a chat to some people in Canada the other day, and when I mentioned the mood gin, they were like, oh, well, that sounds amazing. Could you do the same with whiskey? Because we love to drink our Canadian whiskey with Coke. Uh, <laughs> so I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, something to, to put out there. It's maybe a problem that only Canadians seem to have. Give us a month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a whole month. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's really impressive, guys. Um, I think this is your first uh, first major uh, product launch. So I think we're all very much looking forward to seeing what comes next. And yeah. first major podcast. Yeah. First major podcast. First of many. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, John. And if anyone is keen to try it, uh, please, we always say, please just try it with soda water. Um, you get it at any macro store nationwide and uh, at Yappy Chef. And uh, more to come.
So Yappy Chef, and you just search for Mood Gin. Yep. Either classic, pink, or amber. Yes. Classic pink or amber. We okay. dare you to try it with soda. We dare. You. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a bit of a mind. Uh, it's a mindset shift, but I think once you've tried it, uh, it's difficult to go back from there. So, congrats, guys. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, John. Thank Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to Heroes of Futurism. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing and we'll see you next time. Cheers.